0: Episode 345 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we are about to express views that are not shared by our firms, institutions, clients, family members, or pets, uh, maybe not even us three weeks from today. Uh, and our interview this week is going to be with Jane Bambauer, University of Arizona Professor of Law. We're going to talk about uh we're going to do a retrospective on uh, the uh, total failure of covid19 apps to do anything useful um and she's also going to join us uh, for the news roundup because she is a uh, um, she may be my principal competition for the one job in government that I really want, which is Chief Privacy Skeptic, um, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, privacy law, uh, facial recognition, and the like. Uh, uh, Jane, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: And uh, also joining us for the News Roundup, uh, back at last, it's great to have you back, Matthew Hyman, senior, senior Fellow and Director of Planning at the National Security Institute.
2: Great to be back. Thanks, Stuart.
0: And Dave Itell, uh, Information Security Specialist and founder of the Itel Foundation uh, and uh, otherwise unemployed. Dave, good to have you.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, also back after a fairly long uh, absence, Maury Schenk, London-based lawyer and technologist. Glad to be here, Stuart. And of course, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today. Uh, why don't we jump in? I uh, We're going to be around the edges but probably not deep into the, uh, the violence at the uh, demonstration in uh, on January 6th at the Capitol uh, but it certainly has changed the debate about facial recognition uh, um, uh, it's gone from Toxic, anything that it d- touches has to be uh, bad. To people saying enthusiastically, let's use facial recognition to dox every one of the people who showed up at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. Uh, um, and uh, not just facial recognition, but uh, GPS data Um there's a proposal to, to use facial recognition technology. In fact, the, the, the assumption is that law enforcement is already using it. Uh, and there are questions about, you know, if, if I, I'm guessing 20%, 10% of the people who were at that uh, demonstration were wearing masks. And there's some recent uh, um, research that suggests that masks don't prevent uh, successful facial recognition algorithms. Uh, Dave, you looked at that research. Do you think that's a fair assumption that they can actually tell who these people are, even if they're wearing masks?
3: I I think it's, it's a very complicated problem. And no, I don't think that they're going to realistically be able to determine who people are from a broad data set. However, the easy problem is whether or not they're going to be able to say with some level of accuracy, given your name and a picture of you with a mask, that it was you. And that's much easier to solve. And even there, they show a five percent sort of false positive rate, which is one in 20 is not good. Is It's, is the way it, I put it's it.
0: certainly not good if you're arresting people or there are bad consequences. Correct. Uh, it might be a, it might be good enough as a lead. Right. If as you want to say and this is this is really the issue that?
3: with all the biometrics we've used in law enforcement is when they perform poorly they have humongous implications and then people get very very upset for good reason and so that's really the issue with some of that but here they have so much evidence from cameras at every direction that i think it's not going to be a one of those limiting factors in arrests if we put it that way
0: so this uh, one of the big databases that um are used for these um facial recognition uh, efforts, is the Clearview uh, data uh, um, uh, face recognition uh, software, um, which has been challenged on privacy grounds, especially, uh, I think there's a lawsuit uh, in Illinois claiming that it's a biometric uh, information acquired without consent. Um, Jane, you filed a brief in that case, amicus, saying there that the problem with the law is that it's unconstitutional.
1: I have. Yes. So, so that particular law, the Illinois law, one one thing to make clear is that it applies to everyone, not just law enforcement. So this is, you know, if, if the ACLU's reading of the, this particular Illinois law is correct, then all facial recognition performed by anyone, even private companies, even individuals uh, would be illegal. Uh, So I wrote a brief making a First First Amendment argument that because the law is designed to interfere with basically knowledge creation, something that we could do with our own eyes and brains, looking at a picture and comparing it to a face and and asking ourselves if it's the same person, um, that because the target of the law is to disrupt that type of knowledge creation, it implicates the First Amendment and needs to and, and therefore needs to pass scrutiny, which I don't think that this particular law can do because it's so broad. I will. I also though have written about the Fourth Amendment sort of implications of these types of technologies because one thing I actually like about facial recognition as used as a police tool is that it's one of the few things we have that is crime-driven rather than suspect-driven. Uh, what I mean by that, and I'm borrowing Chris Labogan's terms, by the way, um, is that uh, when we have pictures of people that we know breached the Capitol, then we are starting with the crime and then reaching out to figure out who did it. And there are a lot of ways in which this actually helps reduce rather than exacerbate some of the, you know, pathologies that, that we're concerned about rightly, I think, and, in policing.
0: Yeah. So there, there's a lot of that where the uh, location technology can be used in the same way where you say, uh, I know somebody broke into this uh, uh, store at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, how many phones were on in the, within 20 feet of the store at two in the morning?
1: Exactly. Yeah
0: all right uh, uh well i uh, the other thing that uh of course uh happened after january sixth, and we talked about this last week was the the great purge of uh, a whole bunch of conservative accounts and certainly trumpista accounts uh, uh and uh For those of you who listened to the last version uh, where I uh, kind of on the fly said, maybe instead of using Section 230 or the antitrust laws, we ought to um, uh, just impose an enormous tax on uh, social media that, Uh, conducts content uh, moderation uh, if they have more than 30 million users. Well, I turned that into an op-ed. It's in the Washington Post uh, uh, today. So uh, those of you who want to um, uh, take a look at it, that's the place to look at. I still don't know for sure whether that would work, but it strikes me as avoiding the problem of turning this into a regulatory regime, which inevitably will be used uh, to lobby Uh, social media to pick sides, to pick the side of whoever actually controls the government, and then to uh, uh, capture the regulators so that they end up protecting the monopolies they're supposed to be uh, uh, disciplining. So uh, this at least avoids that. Um, Dave, um, this is the last of the topics on this uh, 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 arising from January 6th up. Parler, I, I I I keep wanting to pronounce it Parlay, but I gather that's not the way you pronounce it. So Parler was killed off uh, by the woke employees of Google, Apple, and uh, Amazon Web Services by just saying we're not going to let you compete with Twitter. Uh, Parler went out of off the air uh, and is basically still out of business, but they are rebuilding an infrastructure which looks as though it's kind of um based on the same infrastructure that a lot of people who are at the edge or beyond the edge of the law use uh, um and it's it's got a deep russian connection if i understand it
3: well i think i always thought it's pronounced parlor but maybe uh, yeah knows? yeah
0: yeah no probably it is uh, i i i've heard jonathan Zittrain use uh, uh Parler, and since i was in the parlay school parlayer is a way is a, is a good halfway house for me
3: i i don't feel like there probably is anyone on parlor that speaks french and would use a french pronunciation <laughs> but i i i only browsed it very briefly um i have to admit so i i will say that the the thing you were talking about earlier with the taxes on large social media companies, our I would say, worst nightmare is when Americans are not using American social media companies, but they are using software like TikTok, where their their content is naturally hosted or flowing through random adversarial countries. And in this case, you know, like China and Russia are our top two geopolitical adversaries. And you saw what we tried to do to TikTok. Or are still trying to do? I don't really know how that's no. We, out. We,
0: we we seem to have completely you know just memory hold it. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to write a fifty dollar check to Lawfare uh, because Ooh. Uh, Ooh. Uh, Nick Weaver uh, yeah. uh, bet me fifty bucks. I thought that was a sure thing, uh, but uh, Nick has uh, did, has tried. I triumphed. did not
3: agree with your risk assessment on that bet. I have to admit, <laughs> when I listened to that episode, I was like, mm,
0: "Yeah, was well, you're you're, you're right. I'm wrong."
3: <laughs> so. It's okay to be wrong, but in this case, we've, we've taken, I would say, a vulnerable population and had them now send all of their data through Russian servers. It's not just that uh, Russia is handling the, the they, there's a particular sort of domain registrar that they're also using, which is known for providing services to websites that host neo-Nazi and other extremist content. So that's called EPIC. But the, the the downside of all of this is that when they're using DDoS guard, which is the Russian equivalent of Cloudflare, uh, Russia is going to be able to both control the information and monitor the information. And I don't know that that's better news than having it on us servers
0: yeah but yeah, this is reasons. this wasn't a policy choice uh, the aws basically was saying screw you as far as we're concerned you can go on a corner and die uh it's not like they said why don't you go to the russians uh, uh, they just wanted to get rid of them uh, well, the, uh,
3: the policy question is do we allow them to be hosted somewhere else right like this is a firm question because they're very explicit about the fact that if you have enough private data on U.S. citizens, that we can a you and essentially disrupt your business uh, or make you spend lots of money on legal expenses and or lobbyists and or, you know, I think they could, although,
0: you know, the, the, the places they've gone to up to now were created and are under the thumb of uh, the uh in in most cases china chinese government this is one where it's more of an opportunity to conduct espionage or maybe to choke a particular bottleneck uh if you took that view there's an awful lot i mean uh, uh, telegram is not but there are a lot of uh, uh, uh software programs and other activities that we allow to operate in the United States, even though the Russian government has visibility into their activities. Uh, Oh, for sure. I mean, I
3: I think our our general data security policy is schizophrenic at best. And there were sort of, you know, the clean pipe stuff you saw coming out of the State Department, which uh, was roundly derided as just being sort of a weirdly xenophobic uh, catch-all, was... Had real policy thought behind it that could have been maybe the germ of something more strategic, perhaps. But we're we're clearly not there yet. So, and it remains to be seen if the Biden administration is going to take that ball somewhere.
0: Shall we yeah. say? Yeah. So, I while we're picking up on uh, old threads, let's talk about solar winds because there's still news coming out about solar winds. Uh, um, if you use that as the Broad uh, uh, label for what looks like a big SBR uh, intrusion uh, for espionage purposes, um, and what I, I think we had a new analysis uh, uh, of the attack uh, from was it CrowdStrike as well as uh, Solar Winds itself. So
3: yes, that is the, and and if you look at what Solar Winds is saying, they also have KPMG and their lawyers get mentioned first before CrowdStrike or KPMG. They're like, DLA Piper, CrowdStrike, KPMG, in that order. So um, So
0: it makes you you wonder uh, uh, just uh, how massaged the uh, report is.
3: I I think there are tiers of legal teams looking at each of these reports that come out from any of these companies. And I mean, I guess one thing I want to call out is that we've, it's interesting what we don't know. We do not know how Solar Winds was penetrated in the first place, as far as the public eye is concerned, and I think, as far as all information is concerned, I think. Although
0: you know, they, they 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 have everything from Belarusian uh, programmers to uh, um, a, a CFO and CEO who are really into cost cutting. So the assumption is they 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 screwed up on their security, but we don't oh, know. You're right. It
3: could literally be anything, right? So. So I think that's an interesting thing, but you also had a New York Times article come out a couple weeks ago, and it literally says, widely used software company may be entry point for huge US hacking. And it calls out a company called JetBrains. Originally, they called it an obscure software company, despite being one of the most popular software companies for its particular vertical in the world. And it's a Czech company that has like Russian, uh, employees in its executive team and the New York times article, which is from their top team. It's from Nicole Polroth, David Sanger, Julian Barnes is essentially claiming that JetBrains was how they were penetrated. And it was based on, as you are probably aware, anonymous sources about some vague investigation.
0: Yeah. And Inside, it was a, it was a, the, it, it the government is the source, supposedly, of this uh, uh, charge, but it has not really been particularly backed up by anybody. It's not analysis. been backed up by
3: anything. They edited the article like five times because they were getting a lot of flack on Twitter, and they have not done a retraction, despite the fact that it, it, it it's extremely damaging to jet brains to have this kind of statement in the New York Times, as you yes. might imagine. And, I would be extremely angry if I was running a software company and something based on some anonymous, probably misrepresented investigation that I had no way to push back on. And as you can imagine, the JetBrains response has been pretty, um, pretty angry on the Internet. And so that's something I think we need to like, watch very carefully with the reporting on SolarWinds is that even from the top teams in The New York Times, the reporting is very bad.
0: So, yeah, that's, that was weird. I mean, they had so many reporters on that, you'd think it would have been very carefully done, but you also wonder whether that meant they were all kind of um, uh, sticking in their little piece and that it didn't get enough review as a whole.
3: I, I don't know. And, you know, this reminds me of the one that they did a while back on the NSA hacking Baltimore. If you remember that article yep. from and that was a debacle as well and should have been retracted immediately. So some of the some of the things coming out from public media on this are, are sort of shooting just off into the dark. And that's one thing that I think is an overall interesting strategic picture for how do we as a country handle major incidents is you're going to have politicians pressured to take immediate action. But what action? We don't have really good action on this sort of thing. And no one knows the truth about really anything. We don't know how many people were penetrated. Symantec has an article out this morning that says they discovered a new piece of malware that's associated with this called raindrop that was used on four different people, which is a very small number of people. If you consider the fact that 18,000 people downloaded the initial stager.
0: One of the authors of that and and somebody who is common to both of the articles you just criticized is Nicole Perlroth at the New York Times. Uh, She has a book that's coming out in February. This is how they tell me the world ends. uh, And she's agreed to come on and do an interview with us in episode 349. So we we may get a chance to um, ask her some questions uh, about. The the question uh, I always have is
3: like, it, it's very difficult to be a journalist in this space and not have an opinion. But I think there's there's a time when you're really looking for something as an activist and you have a political position on these issues. And I think that can cloud some of these articles.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, uh, in fact, I was advising a client the other day about how to handle uh, a, a, a breach. And I said, the most important thing is that uh, how you handle it has to appeal to um, the digirati who actually do incident response and computer security. Because uh, if those folks think you handled it properly they'll say so to their friends who will say so to the press and you'll get good press coverage and if they think you screw it up as equifax for example uh, was widely derided for having done uh you will be you'll be toast uh, and it will quickly get into the mainstream media so uh there's a remarkable power to the uh, to the uh, what you could call the hacker elite
3: it's a tiny tiny community i mean i know people involved with all these investigations and frankly, a lot of the incident responders have really hard jobs trying to piece together tiny fragments of information. And if you read the Solar Winds blog from uh, last week, they're saying that this the first trace that they have of anything going wrong was in September, which is, you know, as we learn more and more, the dates are going to creep outward and outward because it's a professional team. And we're going to know less and less certainty about what really happened at that date. And some of, the, some of the timings are very suspicious right now. They're saying that, like, someone got on the server and then eight days later was able to deploy the implant that actually changed the software. To me, that timing is too short. There's no way a professional team tested and figured out everything they need to figure out in eight days. So there's there, – I think what we're looking at here is is still just a giant – ball of catastrophe of reporting going off in different directions we don't have the information we need we don't know how to react it's it's not out of crisis mode yet
0: yeah and so I, I, I a a bush has been arguing for a kind of national transportation uh, uh board review uh, as 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 if, as though this were a airliner crash where 150 passengers had died to, uh and uh maybe we'll end up uh with authority to do that uh, be interesting to see uh, uh we certainly do need something better than relying on leaks from the government and the occasional uh um blockbuster new york times article agreed agreed all right uh so uh, the um the trump administration it's uh A slogan is not dead yet. Uh, And they have uh, um, uh, started implementing. The Commerce Department has actually issued regs designed to implement uh, the old executive order, not old, it's pretty recent, executive order 13783 uh, or 873. um, The one that essentially kicks China out of U.S. uh, Internet and uh, communications networks. uh, And... uh, the regulation is actually, more a pretty thoughtful. It's an interim reg, but uh, it, it's supposed to take effect in 60 days, and they actually wrote a reg as opposed to just saying, yeah, we're gonna get back to you on that.
4: Yeah, I mean, this will certainly not be high on the Biden administration's list of regs to roll back quickly, and they may even be happy about it, talking about taking a tough line on China. Um, basically, it allows the Department of Commerce to block a wide variety of information and communications technology transactions, but they've limited it in an important way because there has to be somewhere in the supply chain a a foreign adversary uh, is the term of art involved. And they've limited foreign adversaries to those associated with China, Russia, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Uh, That list can change, but that limits it. They put more process in place in terms of a licensing process. And review process so it's uh, and it doesn't apply when syphia supplies but it's sort of a second layer for a lot of tech transactions beyond syphias but i think it may be one that we uh, have around for a while
0: so if parlor ends up relying heavily on russian uh, uh infrastructure could you apply this uh, that, that would make the biden administration even more enthusiastic about it
4: well um yeah, I don't know too much about where Parler is based. Um, I, well, it's it, 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 it,
0: it, it. Reportedly, it's it's a U.S. CEO. Reportedly, some conservative money, uh, though doubts about whether that was all. Uh, but this uh, um, this suggestion that uh, the uh, protection of the uh, servers uh, is being provided. By a Russian company that usually protects uh, um, uh, very dubious businesses uh, in Russia, and that's why they're in Russia is because the Russians won't take them down. I, I don't. I, I don't think that was what was intended, but it's. It will be interesting to see just how far that reg could be taken.
4: Well, definitely, as uh, if there's a U.S. nexus, the reg is very broad, so. Um and that's enough of a russian nexus so yes it could be applied
0: so uh, the other thing i think is interesting is that china uh, if, if there's anything china believes in internationally especially dealing with the west it's mirror imaging making sure that anything that inconveniences or uh, disadvantages china by way of law in other countries has a chinese counterpart so that uh, uh, China can say, yeah, that uh, that hurt when you did it to us. How's it feel when we do it to you? Uh, and China now has, uh, I'm surprised it's taken them this long to get around to it, the beginnings of a blocking statute, something that the Europeans have used against the United States when it imposed sanctions for two generations. Uh, uh, what, uh, what did China actually do there, Maury?
4: You know, we've been saying for 25 years that a lot of countries were gonna do tit for tat against US extraterritorial legislation and Europeans have done it. Um, It's increasing, the US likes to be extraterritorial. The blocking statute uh, regs released January 9th by MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce in China. And it's heavily based on the EU model, um, but it applies to any foreign statute. So the, the EU model is listed you uh, listed legislation, but the China can apply it to any foreign statute. It requires Chinese companies that are affected by extraterritorial legislation to report it, and it allows the government to issue prohibition orders to say you must not comply with that legislation. So, so get- the
0: kind of the kind of territorial extraterritorial uh, applications they're talking about is if, if uh, a company is designated as a national that Americans can't do business with Uh, you can't do business with them in china just as you can't do business with them in the united states is that the extraterritorial impact that we're talking about here
4: Uh, that's one that they've mentioned the u.s has some recent um, legislation under the foreign direct product rule that um, tries to reach deep into foreign supply chains even where the u.s nexus is very tenuous uh, that has been specifically mentioned. So that's the kind of stuff they're talking about.
0: And the the the, the European blocking statute went so far as to say, if you're a European uh, uh, entity who's ordered to, to not do business with somebody, we're just telling you, screw that, do the business anyway. And uh, you might be subject to liability in the United States, but you'll be subject to liability in Europe if you don't. Continue uh, to do business.
4: Yeah, and the Chinese follows exactly that model. I read some of the Chinese coverage of this, and they're very explicit that they expect it to produce conflicts of laws, but the, but that's the game that they're playing.
0: So this is going to be the, potentially, it, it sounds like, a big problem for the few American companies that are left in China, because if they do business, uh, if, they're, if they're told you can do business by the United States, you can do business with anybody except the following four people. And one of those four people shows up and says, I'd like to do business with you. That's supposed to be your Kentucky fried chicken in Beijing. Uh, and a designated national walks in and orders a bucket of chicken. And you say, I can't serve you. At that point, you're subject to considerable sanctions by the Chinese government.
4: Yep. Correct. And there are some very big Chinese companies who are being uh, affected by this U.S. extraterritorial legislation, as they put it. So it could be a big problem. I mean, in Europe, the same theoretical problem has existed and they very rarely triggered the blocking statute. So there it remains to be seen whether China is going to use it, um, use it as a threat or use it actively.
0: Okay, Uh, but one more reason why uh, decoupling is going to look more popular because you're just basically there at the sufferance of both governments either one of which could uh, choose to enforce the law against you uh, momentarily um, so I this is a this is a topic that I love I don't know if anybody else does uh, Mozilla has announced that it's uh, implementing TLS 1.3 and the encrypted client hotel uh, hello, which is essentially about encrypting every aspect of the DNS queries that uh, uh, somebody makes with a, a, a Mozilla browser, uh, a Firefox, Fox browser, I should say. Uh, and uh, it's it's obviously prevents your ISP from spying on your uh, browsing habits, but it also means that if you put Firefox in a uh, corporate environment, the corporation has no idea what's going out over the um, uh, the channel that uh, it is seeking to uh, connect to the internet. And it's not that hard for people to set up a DNS that is basically the DNS for exfiltration purposes. And you don't even get to see where your um, users machines are being sent to uh, exfiltrate data. That's at least been my assumption about what this does. Uh, uh, Dave, uh, am I got it right?
3: I would say, I don't want to confuse two different things here. One of which is DNS and the other of which is the TLS certificate sort of handshakes that are going back and forth. But I also do want to confuse things there because I think there's, they're part of a larger, sort of equities decision at some level, which is do I want people to be able to see who I am connecting to? And that is the same sort of decision for uh, an individual on a laptop that happens to connect to a guest network inside any corporate area. And also, of course, it's for all of your client machines that people are running financial documents on inside your business. So the difficulty here is... There's a lot of hardware and software that is designed to look for anomalous activity where your employees are connecting to websites that they shouldn't be connecting to. But the websites themselves all run on the same server. So Parler could be running on the same server as the DNC, right? Like they could both be running together on the exact same IP address. And the way that server knows which website to give you is going to be related to which SSL certificates you're trying to ask for and presenting for and all that stuff. And it used to be that was transparent to an intermediary, even though the content of the message was not transparent. However, with the latest innovations, all that is opaque and they can't start filtering stuff out at any of the borders. And you're not going to be able to get data on any sort of global surveillance mechanism of, what sites people are really trying to visit. And that makes a lot of people who rely on that data very unhappy.
0: Yeah, because if if you could find a reasonably popular site and also host your exfiltration C2 machine there, uh, um, then... They would not know whether you were going to the popular site or exfiltrating data because they wouldn't be able to see uh, the particular um, uh, site you're trying to go to. And they wouldn't be able to start
3: filtering and blocking. And what you're seeing is that software is starting to splinter out all of these controls in a much more decentralized way. So Chrome's going to have its own DNS information and its own HTTPS information, and so is you know, Safari and Firefox and Windows-based operating systems. So everyone wants control of what names and stuff goes where. And that's natural for
0: anyone who's fighting in this world. So I'm guessing that most uh, uh, most web browsing, or certainly uh, close to half of it, is on systems that are protected by a CISO somewhere, the, uh, some enterprise. Uh, um, and... It it does feel as though the people who are making the hardware and setting the standards for these uh, connections are kind of completely ignoring the interests of the enterprise and thus the end, the interests of their users in security in the in the name of providing them with a little bit more privacy from uh, uh, watchers who really have never turned out to be a serious problem.
3: I mean, this has been the story of all enterprise, right? Like. Yes. sorry, yeah. Second-class citizen. <laughs> yeah. I, I Jane, was interested
4: you... to see that Cloudflare though seems to be a big advocate of this uh, encrypted client hello, and their business is protecting mostly enterprises from DDoS attacks and so forth. So, what what's going on there? I didn't get it.
3: I, I think there's a lot of incentives, and what you see is all businesses don't want to have access to information that they could be asked to provide someone else. So. You have like the two sides of the business, right? You have people who want to make money by selling your information and people who don't want to hold your information because someone might ask them for it and they don't want it to be their business. And Cloudflare has, has, generally wants to be that person. Whereas say a Comcast wants to be the one selling your information as it passes through their network. And I think those two are just diametrically opposed business models. And it's interesting to see this happening again and again with different pieces of the puzzle.
0: Yeah, so monetizing your – if you're an ISP, monetizing your users' uh, um, browsing habits has never been an enormous source of revenue for a variety of reasons because uh, uh, Google and Facebook and some of the other ad tech guys have much finer – grained access to information about you uh, and so it, this is just additive uh, it, it's it's better than not having the, the, it but i'm not sure that it's ever going to make verizon say a lot of money um it, that's the threat the threat is that verizon is actually going to know almost as much about you as google does uh uh which strikes me as uh uh, only scary if you uh, um, trust Google more than you trust Verizon. And some people do. Uh, but what's really scary is that in, in order to pick this fight with Verizon, uh, the, um, the standards bodies and Mozilla and probably uh, 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 Google as well are going to say, oh, and uh, all those guys who are trying to keep uh, Russian hackers from stealing all your email, yeah, screw them.
3: Oh, I I think, yeah, the the implications of this are going to be seen 10 years from now and not tomorrow. And it's it's going to get fought over and over again. And it's fun to watch. But I don't think enterprises are going to be on the winning side of this. I mean, a lot of enterprises don't even give you a laptop anymore. They just give you a budget for a laptop and they say the rest of it's your problem. So many of them have just given up on this idea of control anyway. There's no perimeter. We're all working from home so what what do they think is going to happen here right like that's that may be the broader uh field that we're all fighting on
0: if if that's the case i mean that's you're you're just toast at that point because the assumption is they would have gotten past the perimeter anyway and the only way to catch them if they're past the perimeter is to spot anomalous behavior and if you say yeah i'm not going to look for it there's there's nothing left is there
3: I I mean, there is stuff left, but it's definitely not in like DNS queries or which websites people are visiting anymore because they're visiting, you know, Twitter and they're visiting other websites that you have honestly no business on uh, and, and surveilling your employees gets a lot more difficult when you don't have a perimeter and you don't even have an office.
0: Yep. Well, speaking of all the the emails, people are stealing. uh, uh, Matthew, I I thought it was interesting that ransomware gangs are now uh, they they had obviously uh, encrypting all your data was their original business model, and then when people started backing up and uh, getting their uh, saying, I'm not going to pay the uh, ransom. I'm just going to run from my backup. uh, uh, The gangs started saying, oh, well, we stole all your data while we were in there encrypting it, and we're going to release it on the internet. Um, and we've especially gone after your top executives, at least one agency, uh, one one of these gangs is making that argument. I wasn't sure how uh, certain we are that they're actually doing that, but it does seem like that's the best possible pressure point if you uh, can't actually keep the uh, encryption uh, up and uh, uh, in effect.
2: I agree. I, when I read this story, I sort of felt like this was a dog bites man story in the sense that saying that the bad guys target leaders of organizations versus people way further down the organizational trees seemed to me to be obvious. Maybe that's not been their tradecraft to date, but um it just stands to reason, uh, you know, it, particularly in publicly traded companies where, you know, these are officers, you know, the top five officers have all sorts of SEC obligations, and it, so there's the pressure points are obvious. Um, these also tend to be the people that are most highly compensated in organizations for discharging their duties effectively. And so making them publicly vulnerable in some way will probably get them to behave in a way, Uh, that they might not otherwise because it not only potentially torpedoes their career with that organization, but it torpedoes their career with any future organization if they're somehow seen to be reckless or doing something silly that uh, creates a vulnerability for their organization. Well, I
0: I thought uh, briefly about starting a company uh, because there's actually some pretty good um, technology and IP around this, building fake email servers full of fake email. Uh, I, I, and then uh, uh, when somebody says, oh, I'm going to release your email to the dark web, you say, too late. I've already reduced, released five fake um, a servers full of uh, fake emails, no one's going to know which one is real, which one is fake, and uh, uh, no one's going to care about your stupid uh, 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 release. Uh, I still think there's something to that, but I have kind of come to the conclusion that... Uh, and indeed, if I were advising a client, I'd have to caution them pretty carefully about releasing fake information uh, publicly because uh, you never know when that's going to redound to the uh, disadvantage of somebody who can sue you. Um, and so it's one thing to put a fake email server on your system and let the uh, bad guys steal it. That's still worth doing. Uh, but I think releasing it, just that's a probably a, bridge too far for 490 of the fortune 500 yeah
2: i I think that's right and i think um as creative as that idea is i don't know how many in the fortune 500 are going to jump at it and i think in terms of creating your own (laughs) company Stuart, if you're looking to create honeypot inc or honeypot worldwide conglomerate i think the hp ticker symbol is already taken if you're looking to be publicly (laughs) traded
0: you're probably right. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, let's do some quick hits before we get to the interview. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, um, France has been told by the CNIL they can't use drones to enforce the coronavirus rules. This is a, something we'll talk to Jane about because it's uh, it's part of the privacy attack on effective public health, or at least on public health measures, uh, uh, I was sort of surprised that Keneal said, you, you don't have a legitimate statutory basis for doing this, when I would have thought that uh, there's probably a public health law in France that's pretty broad.
4: Yeah, I was uh, I was a little surprised at this, too. I, I think there's been a similar ruling in Belgium, and some countries have very strict applications of GDPR and other privacy laws. I tell you, wandering around here in London and seeing how few people um, are wearing masks, I wish we had a few drones in the air checking that out. But yet, yeah, that's where the canile came out. I, I, there's not that much more to say about it.
0: Yep. Uh, when he, this is another quick one. Uh, the FDIC has adopted cybersecurity regulations that are not about privacy, but are basically telling everybody that uh, you've got maybe a day and a half, two days to uh, uh, notify us of any serious cybersecurity incident. Uh, uh, that's a big change. It's more its more the Pentagon style of uh, regulation on cybersecurity than the GDPR style uh, or or the data breach style probably better uh, we will see i'm predicting they're going to be swamped with uh, um, uh, notifications um, back to mori the eu uh, also did something that surprised a lot of people because the the eu has gone out of its way to say look We know that there could be a lot of different views about exactly what data protection requires. And if you're an international company, you shouldn't have to go hat in hand to every local data protection authority in uh, Germany. There must be 12. Um, You pick one a jurisdiction where you do business, and it will issue the rules and the uh, licenses and uh, interpretations about uh, how the data protection uh, uh, rules apply to you. The European court, uh, at least in the decision of the solicitor general, who's kind of a very influential advisor, has said, oh, screw that. Uh, Facebook, we want them liable everywhere.
4: Yeah, well, it's not quite that far. Yeah, it's the Advocate General, and would uh, the court usually follows him? But sometimes hasn't, like in the Google right to be forgotten case. Um, but uh, he's taken. This is a Belgium case where the Belgian authority has tried to look at something Facebook has done, and he's recommended that the court find, not always that Facebook would not always be regulated. Uh, Facebook is primarily regulated in Ireland. That's where uh, Schrems is. Max Schrems is focused but he said that there should be some exceptions and there's some important ones, things that are outside the scope of GDPR, um, most, maybe most significantly processing by controllers not based in the EU. So if, if an e, EU authority could so, sort of say, this is actually happening back in uh, Menlo Park, maybe they could get it at that way. So if the ECJ goes this way uh, this is going to create a bit more of, ma- of a mess where uh, you know, there will be a real patchwork of litigation over privacy issues.
0: Across so does Europe. this mean that they are essentially privileging attacks on transfers of data to the United States, essentially making the mess they created uh, with Schrems two even worse?
4: Well, first, we have to see which way the ECJ comes out. This. I, I have
0: no doubt that if they have an opportunity to come up with an, a, a, an anti-American ruling, they will. And if they can make this ruling worse for uh, U.S. companies, they'll do it.
4: it. It appears the way the Advocate General has put it, yes, that if it's um, if you're going after something happening outside Europe, that it's uh, it's tougher than on European companies.
0: So this means that the US in order to meet the SHREMS 2 standards is going to have to persuade the Hamburg Data protection authority that they do everything that they can to protect privacy consistent with human rights. Uh, this is uh, th- this this actually makes the whole idea of negotiating a solution that will satisfy the data protection authorities uh, so impossible that the U.S. is going to be forced to uh, turn this into a, a major confrontation. Is my guess?
4: Uh, I'll have to. Uh, I haven't dove into the details of it and the. Advocate General still said, well, the lead authority is the lead authority. So the lead authority is going to still have a lot of influence, but with respect to matters in Germany, it's possible, you know, or uh, I don't know what state Hamburg is in, but um, H- the- Hamburg
0: is like a city state unto itself, if I remember right.
4: Okay, so uh, that Hamburg DPA may have that authority for people in Hamburg, and that there's a lot of, there's a, several million people there, so. That itself could be a problem, obviously, for Facebook.
0: Yeah, all right. Okay, and Matthew, take us out. Uh, The State Department has kind of recreated a Bureau on Cyber Affairs, and uh, and the complaint from people who might be influential with the Biden administration is that the Trump version of this isn't tough enough, big enough, high enough up.
2: Correct. Um, So this is... The re, so Rick's Rex Tillerson created uh, destroyed this bureau eliminated the bureau, and of course uh, alongside of that, when John Bolton came in as one of the many NSA advisors to President Trump, they they sort of downgraded the role of that cybersecurity leader in the NSC. And so now in the last gasps of the Trump administration, they reconstitute it, and I think it's there's a lot of just shoulder shrugging by people that are sort of like what you know what is this just some quick. Wallpaper you're putting up before you walk out the door. And I think it's um, I think it's kind of a pointless exercise because the Biden administration is probably going to revamp the whole approach to cybersecurity and and uh, thinking about uh, leadership in the executive branch on that topic.
0: Normally, you say, well, the facts on the ground are hard to uh, overturn, even if you don't like the guy who created them. But in this case, if I remember right, the Foreign Affairs Committee has the ability to essentially veto these organizational changes. So um, the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, at the Senate could just say, no, that's that's not a good idea. And the Biden administration can go back and, and do what it wants with this, and so that could happen pretty fast.
2: I, th- I think that's right. I think the, a version of this office will certainly exist, um, but I don't think it's going to look quite the way it's been framed by the current team.
0: Okay, let's let's turn to our interview. So we're talking to Jane Bambauer, uh, who is a University of Arizona uh, law school professor, uh, who's written an very interesting uh, and pretty rare uh, look back at COVID tracking apps, which were uh, the principal topic in tech circles uh, in March uh, and have fallen off the radar since then. Um, Jane digs into it with her uh, co-author and talks about, what finally happened with those apps? Uh, and Jane, before we do that, let me ask: Why did you write this? It feels a little personal. It feels you feel it feels as though you're really actually a little grumpy about how badly COVID uh, uh, apps have performed.
1: It's true. You you read it correctly, Stuart. Uh, so in in March and April, I was pulling together a team of Lawyers, technologists, epidemiologists, and some some other folks, uh, to start thinking through uh, how you know law could help support really responsible but very effective apps, and and how technologists could could rise to the challenge. And it seemed like we had momentum. I mean, in fact, I mean to give you a sense. <laughs> Even even Epic uh, hosted an event uh, with me, and um, and you know I, it seemed like I was on the breakthrough of uh, reaching across divisions that sometimes uh, you know are, are are quite persistent actually in, in the privacy uh, scholarship area and uh, finding common ground with uh, this particular public health problem, um, and that got washed aside pretty quickly and quite dramatically. And so then just watching, Brian Ray, my co-author, and I were both involved in local sort of efforts to get an app up and running. And watching the extreme limitations on the development of these apps was uh, pretty heartbreaking as, as a as a person who, you know, as, as someone who believes that we, we don't Always do the best job of harnessing the best that technology has to offer, while also protecting ourselves from the worst of its uh, faults. You know, I thought that this would be a moment where we could um, see clearly what the benefits are from from developing a tracking technology, uh, and and you know, plug our noses and and proceed with it despite some risk. Uh, but we couldn't do that collectively as a nation and especially as a sort of group of elites, um, you know, uh, at least uh, that's the sort of circles that you and I <laughs> tend to fall in. Uh, we, we could not uh, see through what I, you know, I, in my opinion, um, the right balance between risk and benefit.
0: So I I read this, read your article as sort of casting most of the blame on two parties for not having any courage at all. Uh, First, Google and Apple uh, for writing a a kind of crippled uh, set of requirements for these apps. And then governments in saying, oh, okay, never mind then. Uh, uh, when governments could have done more, uh, in some cases, the, the government was actually, uh, pushing in the other direction, the, the Keneal type, uh, data protection authorities, uh, I, is, is, are those the principal people who failed us or did we just all fail ourselves?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I would actually say no, I, it, it's true that if we look in the short run, those are probably the you know two institutions <laughs> that had the most uh, potential to help us see through you know see to the clearing where we could we could develop useful apps and they didn't do it and in fact as you said they they actually proactively went the other direction but i think this was a problem d- years maybe even decades in the making and um you know there are sort of multifaceted reasons that the way we are encouraged to think about privacy is really does a disservice, and so I. Think so we did.
0: We did fail ourselves. We this failed is, this ourselves. Is, this, yes. this is us. <laughs> we, uh, if you want to look at the enemy, the enemy is us. Is us. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, so, what do you mean by that, though? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, what I mean by that is. <laughs> uh, maybe we should back up and say a little bit about what the apps, what, what happened in this story. And then, and then we can kind of go more, uh, um, abstract. Uh, so, so back in March and April, when I was trying to pull together, you know, when I was really excited and felt like I could, um, serve society in, in some minor, but important way. What seemed to me, based on the facts we had at the time to be the case was that we could with, with, especially with the help of large companies and then many smaller startups even, we, we could create COVID risk assessment apps that would greatly supplement what we were able to do at the time with testing and with masks eventually.
0: The idea was that you could, if, if somebody was diagnosed as having COVID, uh, you would go back and look at anybody they had come into contact with and say, you've been in contact with somebody who's had COVID and you need to get tested and maybe quarantined yourself
1: at a minimum. Yes, we could do more than that. I mean, so this is one thing, even South Korea did not take full advantage of the sorts of data that we could have, uh, that we could have, you know, pressed into service. So we could have also, I mean, at the time, remember, testing was really limited. And so, uh, so I think there would have been benefit, though, from even knowing who is out and socializing more than others. Uh, so you could do a risk analysis based on a number of social factors. Uh, but, but at the very least, we could have done what you're describing, digital contact tracing.
0: But we, yes, you're right. You could also have said uh, what actual events and locales are spreading this? Uh, uh, yeah, the there's all these fights over whether bars are a place where you're going to uh, uh, catch COVID or not, uh, and it turns out that going to church choir is the thing that's going to kill you, uh, and uh, and so, uh, but we have no data other than anecdotal uh, on that.
1: And we, we do also have the kind of uh, mobility data that is aggregated and useful up to a point, but what it doesn't do. Is help people behaviorally, right? So I mean, it, it helps a little bit if I know that church choirs are more dangerous than going to the beach. That, that that's useful in terms of what I'm going to do next. But even more useful still is some some way for me to know that the people that I have been socializing with recently have themselves been taking risks. And so now to you know to be a, a socially responsible member of the community, I need to I need to scale back on what I do, I need to or you know, I'm just I've used my risk budget, I, I, I need to, uh, you know, hire a shopper, uh, you know, order online instead of going to the store myself. That sort of thing. I mean, and 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 that's just sort of what I, what my group and I kind of brainstormed with. I'm sure there are lots of other applications as well, but we didn't get to that point. But and that, so that is, a little, you say, know, from
0: a pri- from a privacy point of view, you can see that a lot of people would discover that their uh, wives have been uh, socializing excessively with, uh, you know, a lover. Uh, and and so there there has to be some worry about uh, handing all this information over. To the uh, other members of the public.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so so I would never advocate for a complete handover of the detailed data. Uh, I I I've always thought that you know the the best way to manage the real privacy risks uh, against the real public health eco- economic and social risks, you know, the, the sort of bind that we were in, um, is is something like a score, right? A score kind of merges all of that optimizes it, learns over time, and provides useful information for real-time decision-making without telling you that your husband's having an affair. And by the way, I mean, I, I also sometimes come to the defense of data leaks that allow people to know that their husband is having an affair, but we'll put that aside. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. All right. I'm not going not gonna, to uh, argue with you on that. Uh, but uh, the the reason it... Um it very quickly turned into a race among technologists to see who could skinny down the data uh, most uh, and still arguably provide some contact tracing capability. Uh, And Google and Apple uh, had a chokehold on this because there were only two ways to make these apps. So one was they're on all the time, constantly measuring who's around you, and that runs out your battery, and everybody hates it. Uh, or uh, turn it on and uh, scan the the uh, uh, the vicinity, and you could only do that by breaking or getting an exception from Google and Apple's basic uh, um, uh, rules for how apps. Can act if I remember right.
1: Yeah, that's the, the the for the Bluetooth feature. You're absolutely right. So this low power Bluetooth that doesn't drain your battery but allows you to exchange these handshakes with the phones that are near you. Um, that that required Apple and Google to to change uh, to change change their practices. And so they were going to be a choke point for any app that that made use of that very useful <laughs> technology. Uh, and, um, and they did change, but here, here's where the practical limits of the app's utility comes in. You know, that they changed it in a way that was, in my view, excessively focused on decentralization and opt-in. So, so consent, you know, affirmative consent of a sort of European style. Uh, and, and then also only holding the data on individuals' phones. Um, with the the one centralized part of the um, of the Bluetooth uh, of the Bluetooth system is the um, is the, the sort of upload of these of the um, of your sort of unique time dependent signature that then can be if you've tested positive that can then be downloaded once a day by everyone else's phone. In order to see if the signature matches what your phone has been you know the logs your phone has been kept keeping so um so can i say a little bit about why i think those two things are bad okay so
0: yes please
1: first of all i actually think the bigger issue is the opt-in the 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 consent thing so i'm going to start i'm going to start there based on the uh the the sort of sensibilities that have been years and decades in the making that are reinforced with European privacy law and now to a growing degree U.S. law as well. There is a very, um, you know, sort of consumer centric approach to privacy that Apple and Google felt that they had to adopt, which required an app of this sort that people are already a little freaked out about to 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 make sure that everyone who uses it has done taken some affirmative step to, you know, to basically chooses to, to implement the app and that they cannot, it actually goes further than that. They can't be pressured into doing so. So that even suggests that a, um, you know, an, an employer or a regulatory mandate requiring people to download the app would go against the rules that Apple and Google has set because that, that um, cheapens the consent. It's, it's, um, it, it's not real, you know, fully autonomous consent in that case. So with an opt-in, and, and there are multiple times that people have, up, have to opt-in. You have to opt-in to download the app on your phone. Uh, you have to hope enough other people have done that so that you get anything useful out of it. And then if you do test positive, at that point, you have another opt-in step. You have to also decide to report th- through the app. Um, and so, and, and, and at
0: that point, at, at the first stage, there's something in it for you you know, you you, you might learn that you've been exposed. At the point where you're disclosing that you've been infected, there's nothing in it for you at all. And so when you're asked, do you really want to do this? Uh, There's a pretty strong uh, incentive to say, yeah, maybe not.
1: Yeah. And there's, there exactly is the problem with a you know, consumer-centered approach to privacy in general. By the way, I think one reason I got a little bit of traction for a while at Epic on this was because there was a scandal at Epic where a very prominent figure of Epic uh, tested positive for COVID and did not tell, did not tell, you know, um, colleagues. And the colleagues learned only after the, you know, the slow public health system alerted them. And, um, but that's when you, when you, Assign privacy rights and no responsibility to, to the people who are described by data. Uh, then you do wind up catering to this sort of like, it's, it's sort of ironic. It's sort of like the, the worst form of the, you know, the sort of dumb economist rational actor who who just works in their self-interest but that right. that's what you wind up uh, catering to and, and possibly creating with this this style of privacy so
0: google and apple did this um and they they didn't have to uh although no. there was some pressure to do it that way but they all they were really doing is saying you can run an app that does Certain things on our uh, system, and uh, it's not clear to me that uh, uh, they would have been liable if somebody had written an app that was more less voluntary than uh, um, eh, the uh, data protection authorities of France would prefer. Uh, I but, agree
1: with you there. Yeah.
0: And they imposed it on the whole goddamn world and said, "This is take it or leave it. This is it." And they 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 jammed. The UK government, I think the French government, uh, uh, they twisted a whole bunch of governments around and said, you know, do it our way or just screw off. Uh, It was a remarkably arrogant uh, assumption of power, uh, which I always thought could have been challenged if the governments actually had... um, uh, we're, we're determined to do it you just pass a law that says no you're gonna do it this way uh, uh, and uh, uh, and nobody did
1: right yeah so 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 I actually see see the dynamics a little differently uh, I, I think this is a little bit more like the blocking statutes you were talking about earlier in the program where Apple and Google have been have have had uh, the you know European style of consumer privacy shoved down their throat for so long that uh, it doesn't surprise me that, and and by the way, and and the you know public opinion goes even further than the regulators have, right? So
0: you're going to give me the but, abused child thing that <laughs> all the all the <laughs> regulators had to do was lift an eyebrow, and they said, "Oh,
1: don't hurt me again! Don't hurt me again!" <laughs> well, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't think that they felt powerless. I think that they felt like finally they have some power to show the, um, to to uh, to show what you know what what the 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 wishes of the privacy regulators actually looks like in practice um and its full articulation looks like this you know, sure this because
0: is- it cost them nothing because they, they they weren't making any money off of this right. so they could be purer than the driven snow yeah. on this topic because right. uh, there wasn't any ad tech uh, payoff
1: yeah right i i do agree with that very cynical take yes
0: we're, we're, <laughs> com- we're coming back to why the why the did governments Every single government in the United States, every state government had probably had certainly half of them had authority just to tell Google, we're taking over your platform, and we're telling you, you will run this app. And if you don't, we will seize all your property and start finding you. Uh, Nobody even tried that. Uh, And you've dug up uh, some examples of... Um, legal problems for the uh, health departments that suggest that nobody did that because there was zero political support for a tough COVID tracking app.
1: Correct, yeah, yeah. So there was no courage because there was no will among among the population. Well, actually, so I, I'm not sure about the, the will question. I I, I I think what I would say is the, um, the, the lawmakers um, perceived that there was no will. The, the, the reason I make that fine-grained distinction is that at least in April, there was some evidence that, um, that people, and especially, by the way, uh, those who were more likely to work in jobs that required them to, um, you know, essential services, basically, uh, pe- people were actually open to, to the idea of using uh, a, an app, um, and so I actually think that if governors had, governors, public health authorities, the president had more courage and used their uh, public health crisis authority to, to force this, um, it, it, it may have turned out okay. But an even, an even better way to go about this was the way that, that at least I, I saw masks being adopted so what what happened with masks? It, it's true that eventually most states had a had a mandate, or at least you know at the local level had had some ma- mask mandates. But but before that happened, at least in Arizona, uh, it was really like Costco and Trader Joe's and Walmart and Target that, that led the charge because they wouldn't let people into their stores without a mask. And and that you know and so the irony. I know everyone thinks that masks are politicized, but Oh my goodness. I would be so relieved if COVID apps could be, could have the same level and the same type of politicization, (laughs) but masks do because many people wear masks and almost nobody uses these apps. Uh, So so yeah, I, 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 this
0: is, this, you know, I, I think this is a sign. I, uh, I'm going to, um, create a cyber law podcast, uh, um, bumper sticker that says privacy kills because it does uh, it, you know there are, there are many ways in which privacy law prevents us from uh, uh doing the right thing in terms of protecting people's lives um, a, and this would have been one of the examples except i i'm kind of as we've seen it play out you know the south koreans that did all that uh, uh contact tracing they've had outbreaks since then uh, and contact tracing for something that spreads asymptomatically and pre-symptomatically is almost impossible to stop with uh, uh, with contact tracing. So I just wonder whether contract trac- contact tracing ever really would have made much difference in terms of where the, uh, uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic went.
1: I mostly disagree, but I'll end with a, you know, with, uh, I'll, I'll finish up my thoughts with, with a way in which I do just, do agree. I, I think that this kind of app is precisely useful for asymptomatic, uh, uh, contagions. So in, in fact, you know, if we compare this, this version of SARS to the original, the first SARS, uh, what made the SARS, that, that SARS was much more deadly, but it was shorter in duration, uh, because, uh, it only spread symptomatically. And so with symptomatic spread, people are able to protect themselves more because the, um, those who, you know, they know when they're exposed. And, um, and so with an app, I, I agree with you that, that contact tracing, this is one reason I don't want to call, you know, the, the untaken path, the path of COVID contact tracing apps. I, I think that an app that did risk scoring of a different sort would have been more useful than just plain contact tracing because backwards looking I mean it can help pe- get people get tested. I think even that would make a difference. but but um, but but I think an app did stand to d- create a lot of value uh, by giving people a sense of where they are in the risk, you know the risk continuum, uh, and then encouraging them to change behavior in various ways. And, and I do and, and so and that's precisely the most useful when we cannot see and make, um, you know, we can't sort of visually make uh, visually or experientially distinguish between the uh, infected and the non-infected. sounds
0: like a black it sounds like a black mirror episode you say i'd love to go out with you but i'm at a four nine now and i can't that
1: would be great (laughs) i know it does sound like a black mirror episode and and that means that it's therefore sinister but you know but this is this is part of what frustrates me about the sort of you know the the data ethics that we're living with right now is that it seems sinister but might be great (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but however, I do think you might be right right now, even though I disagreed with you, that I would, I disagree that, it, you know, I, I think they could have been very useful in, in May, June, through the summer. Right now, uh, the more we understand about um, the mutations that, that, that seem to be taking place, uh, it looks like we have a virus that might be more like smallpox, where it's extremely <laughs> contagious. And there, you know, if that's the kind of infection we are fighting, then I agree that there's limited value to, to something like like this style of app. So it, I, it depends very much on the facts.
0: I will close with, uh, I, I spent some time studying smallpox when I was at DHS uh, for obvious reasons. And uh, um, I'll tell you two chilling stories about how uh, smallpox spread. One was about a guy who uh, um, was in a completely different part of the was this on the second floor of a hospital and uh, uh the there was a sealed wing downstairs that had a smallpox patient in it uh and he had opened his window one day just a crack uh and he got smallpox because the smallpox virus went out the window of the sealed wing crawled essentially wafted up the side of the building and in to uh, his room uh and he got uh, uh smallpox somebody else opened the door down the hall from the smallpox patient uh, uh, just to look in to see if his wife was ready to leave she was a nurse closed the door he got smallpox because it just wafted down the hall. So I yes, it, it's it's really scary what smallpox can do. Thank God it's more or less dead uh, it, uh, until it's reinvented by uh, biotech uh, uh, lunatics. All right, Z- Jane Benbauer, that was a great uh, um, study, uh, 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 kind of a sad object lesson in. Privacy politics, technology, uh, and uh, um, the ways in which uh, the people who've been beating the drum over privacy have led us into pretty dysfunctional uh, views about uh, how to protect ourselves in an emergency. Uh, uh, Thanks very much. Uh, We'll we'll have you back, uh, especially if you're going to be talking about the First Amendment and privacy, because that is a gift that keeps on giving. Thank you, Stuart. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks to Dave Itell, Matthew Hyman, Maury Shank, and Jane Bambauer for joining us. Uh, uh, thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been Episode 345 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by... By Steptoe and Johnson, I really urge you to leave us a review. We uh, uh, we live and die by the reviews we get, uh, and I want to thank uh, Sydney M W for the latest review, uh, which is not entertainingly abusive, but is nonetheless uh, uh, something I want to read. Uh, he heads it. I can't wait for the next episode. The Cyberlaw Podcast is witty, always informative, and cutting edge. So thanks to Sydney M W. If you leave us Uh, a review that that we can read on the air. We will read it on the air. Uh, Join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.